<clears throat> so we come yet again to another new year, another temptation to set a bunch of resolutions that by February will be gone. Maybe you're not that way. <laughs> I hear some affirmations. Now come the amens when the failure comes. Well, every year I remind you, and every year it becomes more clear to me that for Christians we should be resolution makers every day of the week. That I, there are times that when the new year comes, I, I'm almost shamed because I have these needs to make a resolution that should have already been made. Should have already been committed to just based on the power of the word of God and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So we should be those people who are resolute to hear and obey the word of God every day of every year. Sometimes the, this period from Thanksgiving to the beginning of the new year becomes like our Mardi Gras before Lent for some Catholics. It's the time just to let loose and go crazy until then we get things right on the first of the year. Now, there is truth to the fact that we have many celebrations in those seasons. And there are, we eat more than we usually do, and we, we have busier schedules, and it's all the joy of filled with celebrating Christ with other believers. We know that. But what would it be like if we were like Jonathan Edwards and just made those resolutions every day? And every year, I remind you of these resolutions, so you're probably familiar with them already. But Jonathan Edwards made these resolutions, 70 of them, when he was 18 and 19 years old, between the summer of 1722 to 1723. 70 resolutions resolved. And he would state out what the Lord convicted him of that day. And some of his resolutions have dates on them, and others don't. Some of them, one of my favorites, the way he phrases it, is the 65th resolution, where he gives his resolution, then he said, according to the 27th sermon of Dr. Manton from Psalm 119. He was engaged with the Word. The Word convicted him through the Spirit, and he made a resolution on it. Now, Dr. Manton was someone who died a couple of decades before Jonathan Edwards was born, but he preached a sermon series of 158 sermons on Psalm 119. I have those on my shelf if this piques your interest, <laughs> along with everything else Dr. Thomas Manton ever wrote. Wonderful, wonderful sermons, convicting writing, everything that he wrote I recommend to you. But Edwards was in the Word, and he resolved as a, as a result of being in the Word. On the day he heard the Word, read the Word for him, on the day he read the Word, he resolved to be obedient to that Word. And I would submit that's what our life should look like on a daily basis, submitting to, to resolve to submitting to hearing, which means we have to intake the Word of God, and obeying the Word of God. Now, it's not just all about this legalistic obedience. We know about Christ through the Word. We know about our promises from God through the Word. We know about our eternal state through the Word. We know about our sinfulness through the Word. We know about its solution through the Word. So us connecting with the Word through the Spirit gives us that God-breathed outlook on what our life should look like. So I would submit to you that every day should be in the life of a believer that we resolve and be people resolutely committed to hearing and obeying the Word of God so that we know and love Jesus more and look more like Him. And I wonder what would happen if the Israelites in Isaiah's day were resolution people? What would their resolution have looked like? Isaiah chapter 28 shows us that they didn't know anything about resolutions, at least not resolutions to be holy, at least not resolutions to follow the word of Yahweh. Because in Isaiah chapter 28, the people in Isaiah's day are being um, called out on the fact that they have ignored and scorned the word of God. And it's evident in their lives. And Isaiah, God speaking through Isaiah wants, to know, wants them to know that. And so we are looking at this as well. And we are looking at this. And today we need to be able to understand what our life might look like if we were ignoring the word of God or scorning the word of God. But also how to hold fast to what we know to be true in the word of God because the foundation for our salvation and our sanctification has already been laid by God in the Son and is applied to us by the Spirit for those of us who are in Christ on a daily, minute by minute, second by second basis. So when we look at the Israelites of Isaiah's day, 
we look and we don't need to look at them and say, well, we would never do that. We need to look at them and say, Lord, help me not be like that. Help me not turn away from and ignore the word or scorn the word in my daily life as I profess with my mouth to love you. That's what we learned from Isaiah 28. So let's dig in. I'm not going to read the passage this morning. Um, We have a lot to cover. If you've studied this passage, you know that. We have a lot to cover in this, and we end up reading our passage every morning twice. I read it through, and then I reread it as I preach it. So today, we'll let the reading of each section stand for our reading of of the whole. But in these verses, we are going to see, we are shown two instances of God speaking to his people who scoff at his word. Two instances of God speaking to his people who scoff at his word. Now, we're moving into a new section of Isaiah. We just got out of that short four-chapter section where we were looking mostly forward at the return of Christ and what will look like in the new heavens and new earth, mostly to that. But we also have this tension and relief all the time between judgment and hope, judgment and hope, all the way through Isaiah. And in this next section, which begins in chapter 28 and ends in chapter 35, we are going to see... um, Eight woes, or maybe if you have the ESV, you might say the word ah rather than than woe, but eight calls out to um, God's people. All of it directed toward God's people and who they are trusting and how they are living their lives. Um, And so we're going to see that in six different woes. Did I say eight? I mean six. I think I mean six. One, two, three, four. Six woes, not eight. Six ahs or woes. And then we will get to the last section of this first section of Isaiah in the last four chapters leading up to chapter 39, which bring us into a contemporary Isaiah, contemporary in Isaiah's day, time of a king that was more faithful than King Ahaz, who we met earlier in the earlier chapters of Isaiah. Then we, this section will not give nods toward the time of King Hezekiah. Ahaz's son. Hezekiah is more righteous than Ahaz. And by the time we get to chapter 39, we will see this historical setting. These six different woes that are given, we'll we'll let that mark our text. Um, I know some people who have preached many, many sermons out of these, but I think we'll let the text dictate the sections for us. And since the text gives us these six different woes or ahs in the um, ESV, we'll let those be our next six sermons dictated by the context of, uh, of this section of Isaiah. So here we're looking at two instances of God speaking to his people who scoff at his word. And really, it's scoffing and ignoring. There's there's an um, intensifying when we move from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom in this chapter. So first thing we want to see is the word to prideful Ephraim who ignores Yahweh's, Yahweh's words. Now that is one way of scoffing at the word of God is to ignore it but it's not the full orb view of scoffing which we will see in a moment but the northern kingdom Ephraim is clearly ignoring the word of God and the first thing we see is that drunken Ephraim's proud crown will be cast down look at these first four verses in Isaiah 28 ah the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters he casts down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be, the, will be trodden underfoot, And the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it's in his hand. So these four verses introduce us to the northern kingdom, Ephraim. Now, when it's, you, you'll notice how these phrases are repeated from verse 1 and then again in verse 3 and 4. The proud crowd, uh, crown, the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley. We see this repetition to show to us God's blessing upon the northern kingdom and what they've done with it. This is, this is a description of, 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 a, of a nation who has the blessings of God. 
and they have turned it upside down, and now their crown is not the glory of God, but their crown, according to verse 1, it is the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Now, maybe the crown might refer to Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. Um, that, that, would, that would be fitting to call the capital the crown of the country. But I think it's more than that. I think it's the, the northern kingdom has taken the glory of God and set it aside because they've ignored his word. And now what sets them apart, what, what marks them is their drunkenness. And this is what the whole nation is pictured as in these first um, four verses. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, those overcome with wine. And God says that he's going to bring destruction against them. The Lord has one, verse 2, who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, a storm of might, mighty overflowing waters. He casts down to the earth Ephraim with his hand. And so we've seen this description of Assyria before, have we not? Earlier in Isaiah, we've seen the description that they're like mighty flowing waters and like the great river. So we know this is Assyria. God is reminding them again that he is going to bring this country from the north against them because they are proud. They are arrogant. They have, they have given in to this lifestyle that is indicative of someone who does not know anything about the word of God. Remember, God has spoken to his people. He reveals himself to his people, and they've ignored it, which is going to be proven to us through this section. Now, we've tried to date Isaiah in these different sections whenever we can, whenever we can with any certainty. And this could be that this first half of chapter 28 is referring to the northern kingdom before their fall. So the northern kingdom falls to Assyria in what year? We're getting better. I'm getting more answers every time I ask these dates. These are important dates to know when the northern kingdom falls and the southern kingdom falls and the, some major events that we have dated by the reign of kings that we know to be true. So given the way the wording is, this could be addressed to, um, remember, everything is addressed in Isaiah to the southern kingdom. So he is reminding them maybe what will happen or maybe what already has happened to the northern kingdom at the hands of Assyria. And the way their disobedience is brought in this particular passage is by their extreme, excessive drunkenness. Now, we've seen their, their disobedience brought in many ways, both northern and southern kingdom throughout the book of Isaiah so far. This is another way that we're seeing it, and it's, it's, it's patently overboard on what Isaiah is describing, how he is describing this people. And so they, they present themselves now that their, their crown, their, their pride, what they're noted for is their drunkenness, their being overcome with wine. And God says, I am going to come against you. I'm going to come against you. And this proud crown will be trodden underfoot and I will have my way with you. And the, this idea in verse four of the, the first ripe fig before summer Figs would have two growing seasons, and one would be a, a, a short growth season from the past year's growth, and that would come out in the late spring, early summer. And then those would be picked or, or let fall to the ground, and then the main harvest would come in the fall. And so the description is, as fast as someone can pick that off the tree and put it in their mouth, that's how fast I'm going to come against you with Assyria, with their, the picture of these roaring waters. Now, remember, we have this constant back and forth between judgment and hope. And in fact, all through these six woe oracles, all through it, we are going to see constantly going back and forth pictures of God's judgment and pictures of his promise to the remnant. Nine different, I think it's nine different times it goes back and forth uh, between God's promise of judgment and God's promise of redemption in the remnant and what that will look like. So we have that in this verse, in these verses as well, several times showing us, and that's where we come to in verse 5. We have seen drunken Ephraim's proud crown will be cast down, but now we see the remnant's crown will be Yahweh himself. So we have this contrast between the earthly crown of a disobedient nation to the promise to the remnant of God being their, Yahweh himself being their crown. Look at verses 5 and 6. In that day, Yahweh of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. So to the remnant, to the faithful, to the obedient, 
And remember, we're talking in the northern kingdom. So we often think of just the remnant coming from the southern kingdom because the southern kingdom is, is their remnant comes back into Judah and try to re and they rebuild the temple. And so we think of that being the only remnant. But God has remnants all through his people. Northern kingdom as well. The northern kingdom may be eventually completely assimilated into Assyria, not to exist again, but there's still a remnant within them. And we've seen as we go through the Old Testament that the remnant still suffer the, the punishment of, of those who were disobedient, but they don't suffer spiritually. They may be sent into exile, but spiritually they are safe because their hearts are circumcised. So these, these are the circumcised heart ones that we're talking about that are part of the remnant. And God says, I will be to them a different kind of crown. He says, I will, I will be, I'm the Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. Th this picture of his complete and, and sovereign power over everything, he will be a crown of glory to the remnant, a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. And notice that contrast, glory and beauty. When we're thinking of God, we're thinking of his son, we're thinking of his spirit, and we, we contemplate the full character of our triune God. We, we're thinking of his glory, that, that, that expression of everything good and perfect and just within him. But we also should be thinking of that as beautiful. I talk to people all the time struggling with sin about wrestling with the beauty of Christ. Do you see the beauty of Christ and loving him and following him and all that he is and all that he has done for you? Can you grasp not just the intellectual facts, but does your heart grasp the beauty of the Son of God and all that he has contemplated and accomplished for you? And this is the way the Old Testament people are being asked. God says, I will be to them um, the, this crown of glory, a diadem of beauty. So my beauty becomes your beauty. And how does that happen? Because they are obedient to him. And he works in their life toward his glory shining through them. That was the mission of Israel. To live in such a way that all the nations would come to the mountain where Yahweh dwelt because his people would be seen as the ones pursuing holiness because they were Yahweh's people. So this is a reminder that this is God's work within, within the remnant in 5 and 6. But look also on verse 6. A spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment. That's going to be important. So the people who do sit in judgment, the people who do have authority, that if God is their crown of glory, if he is their diadem of beauty, then he is also the wisdom for justice, a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. So it is God who is our strength. It is God who is our fortress. We are not doing this out of our strength. Our strength, if we have any, comes from him. It is his strength. Any wisdom that we have from the Lord comes from him. It is his wisdom granted to us. It is the wisdom that we pray for from above, not the wisdom from below, the wisdom of the earth. And so this is the promise to the remnant. There's a crown on the earth right now, and it's a crown of, of, of drunken people. It's a proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. But to the remnant, Yahweh, Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth is, is their crown of glory, their diadem of beauty. But look what the third section of this word to prideful Ephraim, who ignores Yahweh's word, says. Ephraim's drunken priests and prophets now are described. And I want you to see in verses 7 through 13 that they stumble in giving judgment. They arrogantly think Yahweh's word is blah, blah, blah. So Yahweh is going to speak to his people through a foreign nation. That's how these verses connect together. Let's read them here, verse 7. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment for all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast. For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, Yahweh will speak to this people to whom he has said, this is rest. Give rest to the weary and this is repose. Yet... They would not hear. And the word of Yahweh will be to them precept upon precept, 
precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, and here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. So here we see this picture of the prophets and priests of the northern kingdom. Now, there's some debate on this, and I'll grant you the debate that some people think we have moved to Jerusalem here, that beginning in verse um, 7, we have moved into what the word to Jerusalem in the southern kingdom, because the prophets and the priests would predominantly be there. But I think the text holds together here all the way through verse 13 that, we're, that Yahweh is speaking through Isaiah to the northern kingdom. They have prophets and priests as well. And the theme of drunkenness is still there. The theme of justice is still carried forth. The theme of the Lord speaking and the people not listening is still there. Plus, verse 14 starts with a great big therefore and moves to Jerusalem. So I think we're still talking about the northern kingdom here. We're still talking about Ephraim. And now we're moving not just from the people in general, the nation in general, but to its spiritual leaders, the, the um, priests and the prophets. And so first, the, the drunken priests and prophets stumble in giving judgment. Look at verses 7 and 8. How many times are we told in different ways they reel, they stagger, they, they're swallowed up by They swallow the wine, but it swallows them up. They stagger, they reel, they stumble. Their tables are full of filthy vomit. This is a pretty picturesque picture, is it not? of a group of people who are supposed to be relying on the word of God and both teaching it to the people and standing between God and the people, the prophets and the priests. Now, the predominant message of this is not merely drunkenness. It, drunkenness is not a biblical concept. It's not what we should be involved in. But the picture in chapter 28 is a, per, is a picture of a group of people in the northern kingdom who have been blessed with fruitfulness and they take the gifts of God and use them for debauchery instead of bringing them to worship of God as the giver of the good gifts. And they have completely given themselves over to the lust of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the desire of the flesh, and the pride of possessions, as John would say, as we studied in the first letter of John not many months ago. So they've been given themselves over. That, that's the mark of something else. That is the fruit of a root that needs to be addressed. And that root is they're ignoring the word of God. That is the root of what's going on. So this picture is given in the most stark terms to say that they have given themselves over to the world and completely ignored the word of God. And we know that they've ignored the word of God because of what, what is coming up in these verses that we just read. So notice that here in verses 7 and 8, they are stumbling in giving judgment. It says that right in the middle of verse 7, they stagger with strong drink, they reel in vision, they stumble in giving judgment. They can't see the right thing, so they can't judge the right thing. Remember, Isaiah has given us this picture of Yahweh who sees everything perfectly and is the perfect judge. Multiple places that we have seen this. It is his rule of perfect justice and righteousness that, that we are looking forward to. And this is what the prophets and the priests, they can't see. They've ignored the word of God so much that they have no foundation in the word. And in their own life, they are so full of wine and overtaken by it, they can't even form their words, see clearly of what's on them, of what's in front of them, so they cannot give judgment. This is such a picture of the world separated from Christ and God's people trying to live on their own without the word of God. This is the fruit that comes from this. And we'll tie some of this up in a minute when we get through this section. But first, let's let this come over us in waves. Stumble in, they stumble in giving judgment. They arrogantly think Yahweh's word is blah, blah, blah. Verses 9 and 10 give us that. What happens here, you see the quotation marks that surround verses 9 and 10. There are differing opinions on this as well. Some people think that this is, this is Isaiah um, that, that's talking about, about the people. But I think it's the people talking about Isaiah's teaching. I think it's these drunk prophets and priests being brought in this picture. They're talking about Isaiah's teaching because Isaiah is giving the prophecy. Yes, he's constantly challenging the southern kingdom with, the, with what God has done in the north, what he is doing in the south, what he is going to do in the south. He is constantly challenging them, and the people have ignored his word. 
And the Hebrew expresses this so, so wonderfully with these, these single syllable, monosyllabic words in the Hebrew. I, I'm no Hebrew scholar and I speak it horribly, but this is what the Hebrew says. Sav le sav, sav le sav, kav le kav, kav le kav, zayir sham, zayir sham. It's just these almost babbling, repetitious kinds of words. Now they have meaning and that's what our versions try to catch, but they're really saying, Isaiah's teaching us like, like we're babies, like we're, like we're completely just weaned from the milk. We're completely taken off the breast. We have knowledge. And he's teaching this, and he's saying the same things over and over again. What's he saying? Repent, or God's going to move against you. And then he gives all the promises that will happen if they repent. And they're so deaf to hearing this, they're thinking this is just blah, 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 blah. My, we were talking about this page and I and Paige says you mean like the teacher in the Peanuts cartoons remember that wah, 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 wah. they said something but nobody cares what they're saying right that's the way they are blah 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 because they're hearing the word and it does not hit here because they're ignoring it and they're searing their hearts that's what's happening here so God is going to act Yahweh will not be mocked. Look at verses 11 through 13 where we see Yahweh speaking to his people through a foreign nation. For by a people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, Yahweh will speak to his people. Now he's already told us in verse 2 with that same language talking about Assyria that this is coming and they're not going to understand their language. It's going to be a foreign tongue that's going to sound like blah, blah, blah. And God has already said to them, the middle of verse um, 12, or verse, verse, yeah, the middle of verse 12, this is rest. Give rest to the weary, and this is repose. Yet they would not hear. They've asked for rest, peace, security, but they would not listen to the word of God and what that entailed from them. God is a covenant faithful God, right? God is going to keep his covenant. And the response of the people to his covenant is to obey what was said. And they even stood at the foot of the mountain and said, yes, we will do everything that you say. And God says, when you don't do that, here is what I will do to you. And what is happening here is the fulfillment of the covenant curse of Deuteronomy 28:49, which says this. Yahweh will bring a nation against you. This is, this is if you disobey the covenant, if you are disobedient. Remember, we have the blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. This is the covenant curse for disobedience, one of them. Yahweh will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. So God is going to bring a nation. You think my word is blah, blah, blah? Wait till I bring judgment upon you with a nation who you think their word is blah, blah, blah. You know that judgment is coming, but you will not even understand it when it comes because you have seared your hearts. I've told you what it means to rest in me, to have security. I've told you how that will happen. I've told you what it means when you're obedient to me and when you're disobedient and you disobey me. So now this is going to happen. Look at verse 13. End of verse 12 has these condemning words, yet they would not hear. And the word of Yahweh will be to them, and then using the same exact phrases, the blah, blah, blah phrases, but only this time it will be a reality. Before you called my word, which you should have understood, blah, 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 but now it's going to be reality. You're not going to understand anything, but judgment will come against you because you have forsaken my word to you. The end of the verse, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. You want security and rest and peace, but what your sinfulness will bring upon you is imprisonment and being broken and being taken into captivity. That's his word to the northern kingdom. But remember, he's speaking to the southern kingdom, isn't he? He wants the southern kingdom to learn. And so verse 14 begins with, therefore... Since all of this is true, and maybe they've already seen it happen, because this ending of this first section of Isaiah, ending in chapter 39, is preparing us for battles around the, uh, the time of 701, 
So that, that could be 20 years after that the northern kingdom was taken into captivity. Now, that happened in fits and spurts. I mean, it happened in 722, but there were still people remaining in the land, and there were still more Assyrians to be brought in to, to overtake, assimilate, and eventually overtake the culture. But there are battles that happen all the way into the, into the, the 760s. So maybe it's already happened that the, the nation has been overtaken. Whatever, even if it hasn't happened, God's saying it's going to. And if we're trusting in the word of God, we know that it will happen. Therefore, now he has another word. He's had the word to a prideful Ephraim who ignores Yahweh's word. But now he has a word to the rulers of Jerusalem not to scoff at Yahweh's word. Look at verse 14. Therefore, hear the word of Yahweh, you scoffers. Now, when that term is used, we might skip over it as just being another, another word, but it is a rich and full word in Scripture, and it is not one that should be said of God's people ever. I, we could go through all kinds of verses, but I want to take you through several verses that paint a picture of a scoffer. And remember, God is speaking to his people, and he calls them scoffers. Psalm 1, you know this verse. Blessed is the man. You know the verse, Psalm 1. It begins in the first verse. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But, who is the blessed one? But the blessed one, his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on his law he meditates day and night. So already we have said that a scoffer is one who meditates on the word. A scoffer is one who is in the word, or is, is uh, the one who is blessed, I'm sorry, I'm speaking backwards, the one who is blessed is in the word, the scoffer by, by definition is not in the word, and we'll see that developed. Proverbs 13, 1, a wise son listens to his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. So they are the ones who are not meditating on the word, and they will not listen to rebuke. Listen, in the Christian life, a rebuke from a loved, loving Christian friend is the best thing in the world. Because it lets you know where you were walking away from the Lord, where you were missing an understanding, where you were not letting the word wash over your life to affect your actions. Now, granted, someone can rebuke you and it be wrong, and then it's a blessing to them because you can show them where it's not right. But this is how we live together. Well, a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Well, that means a scoffer is never wrong in his own eyes. Proverbs 15, 12, a scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. So he's going to stay away from wisdom. He is going to go to the people who will affirm what they, what they already know to be true. Proverbs 19, 29, condemnation is ready for scoffers and beating for the backs of fools. Now we enter into some serious judgment on a scoffer. One who doesn't want, if you don't want wisdom, you don't want the word of God. And that's by definition what sets a scoffer apart. Proverbs 21, 24. Scoffers, scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. Mm. So a scoffer doesn't want the word. He doesn't want rebuked. And he doesn't want wisdom. He doesn't want to even be around wisdom. But a scoffer is also one who is arrogant and haughty and acts with arrogant pride. Again, nothing that a scoffer hears should deter him from his own opinion. The scoffer is the one who looks at the word of God and says, I know what it says, but. He looks at wisdom and says, well, I hear what you're saying, but. Proverbs 24, 9, the devising of folly is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to mankind. Do you feel the weight of this? Not just an abomination to the church or to the people of God. He's an abomination to all mankind. Even the lost world uses wisdom. They may not credit God for it. And sometimes they're like a broken clock right twice a day at least. But they are still seeking for wisdom in one sort or another. A scoffer doesn't even recognize wisdom. And they are an abomination to all mankind. Can you imagine believers being described as scoffers? Instead of a blessing to all the nations, we're an abomination when we scoff at the word of God. The last Proverbs, Proverbs 29.8, scoffers set a city aflame, but the wise turn away wrath. But we see the idea in the New Testament as well. Acts chapter 13, 
Paul ends his sermon to the synagogue leaders in Pisidian Antioch with these words. This is how he ends, right? So anything, anything that he said, here's what he's saying about their hearing. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look, you, and this is the quote, probably from Habakkuk. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if, it tell, even if one tells it to you. Now, that last part is a quote from next week's sermon, from Isaiah 29, that God is doing a work in this. So at the very end of the sermon, he says, if you don't listen to this, you're like the scoffers that the prophets talked about. Now, that would have set some people just alight, would it not? It would have condemned some people, and it would have caused conviction in others and anger in those who were still in their scoffer mode. Second Peter 3, and the the presence of 2 Peter 3 and Jude, the presence of scoffers also mark the last days, which we are living in. As Peter reminds us this, you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. Now, that's the way it works out when you don't want wisdom and you don't want rebuke and everything you think you know is right and it cannot be challenged. Your desires, your sinful desires are what mark you. It's like the northern kingdom, the drunkards in the northern kingdom with the crown of their own drunkenness. Finally, Jude quotes James and says this, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these, James says, who cause division, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, build your, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And... Listen, that's a lot of verses. We could have read twice that many to paint this picture of a scoffer. And I don't want it to go by us. I want us to feel the weight of what the scripture says a scoffer is so that when we proceed through this text, we feel its weight. Because God, through Isaiah, starts out to the, to the people in Jerusalem, verse 14, Therefore, hear the word of Yahweh, you scoffers. The northern kingdom did not hear and you're not hearing either, but you're a step worth. You are scoffing at this. You are setting yourselves up in your own arrogance, and you do not want to hear the truth. And so you act in your own arrogance, and that's what's going to be brought forward. The first thing he says, you have sought refuge in lies and a covenant of death. Look at verse 14. <clears throat> Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehoods we have taken shelter. Now, I doubt that we're hearing the leaders in Jerusalem say that. This is God's assessment of their actions that they have made a covenant with death and a, with Sheol they have an agreement and then when the whip, when the judgment of God passes through, it will not come to us. And they based their security on lies taking refuge in them and falsehood in which they've taken shelter. Now most commentators think this is when the, the southern kingdom, uh, the leaders of the southern kingdom are flirting with putting their trust in, in Egypt against Assyria rather than God. And there's no doubt that that, that that is going to be pressed in these chapters between now and chapter 35. It'll be pressed several times. But I'm wondering if it's even a step deeper in, in its theology for us, which we'll see as we move forward. Right now, let's just realize that all of the places they're placing their security are in every other place but God. And God's assessment of what they've done is that it is built on lies, that it is built on falsehoods, and it's the equivalent of making a covenant with death and shield. That's God's assessment of it. So in other words, it's not going to stand, is it? The, their way of security, which is against God and is not listening to his word, means they are scoffing at his word. They are scoffers. God has spoken. I have told you how to have rest, and yet you have done this. So you have sought refuge in lies and a covenant of death, but your only hope of refuge is the cornerstone I've laid in Zion. Look at verse 16, this famous verse. <clears throat> 
Therefore, because this is the true assessment of the situation, therefore, thus says the Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. So listen to all these architectural words that there is security in what God has done. He's laid a foundation in Zion. So Zion in, in Isaiah is the place where God dwells, right? It's not that it's an important city. It's an important city because God dwells there and that's where he meets with these people. And there, because he's meeting with these people, he's laid this foundation. He describes it not only as a stone, but as a tested stone, a tried stone. One that has proved its merit to do what it's supposed to do. And then he says it's a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation you see this idea of preciousness this this idea of value of of we should we should see the work of God in this valuable way it should be precious to us because this is what God has done now remember back in chapter 8 you don't need to turn there but remember back in chapter 8 we've already seen that God is that cornerstone he is here he has laid the cornerstone but back in chapter 8 we read in verse 14 and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem so Yahweh is the stone and he lays the stone so there we are getting to see this triune work of God in the father and the son which we will see fulfilled in just a moment in Christ himself but he's telling the people of Israel listen if you want security it's only found in me and what I have said and what I've done I've already laid the foundation by my presence with you I've already laid the foundation in the word that I've given you and you are scoffing at that word so I will act he says look at verse 17 in verses 17 to 19 we see God saying I will act restoring justice and righteousness annulling the covenant you made and beating you down with the scourge look at verse 17 and I will make justice the line well, let me back up to the last phrase of verse 16. Can't leave that undone. If we want to call ourselves secure in this cornerstone, in the foundation, we must believe. We must believe in God. We must believe in his word, Isaiah says to his people. And if you do believe, you will not be in haste or you will not be anxious or you will not be disturbed. You will not be panicked. That's what that word means. They're, they're looking for security in all the wrong places. That could be a country song, I think. They're looking for security in all the wrong places. And God said, you put your faith and trust in the foundation I've laid and you will not lack insecurity you you will not make haste in other words you're not going to run away looking for security somewhere else you will rest in my presence guided by my word so if we want that security this is where we need to be Isaiah says to his people so verse 17 begins of how God acts and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line so God, again, returning to these things that motivate him, justice, righteousness. He wants his people to live righteous and to act just, justly and to mete out justice. But remember, the northern kingdom, they're too drunk to see a vision. They're too drunk to give judgment. They have no foundation in his word, and they've let, they've let their own sinfulness lead them to the place where physically they can't even discern right from wrong. But God says, I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies. That's where they've taken, put their security. And waters will overwhelm the shelter, again, where they've placed their security. Then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. And remember what they have said. They said when the overwhelming whip, a different metaphor, but the same thing, the judgment of a nation, passes through, it will not come to us. We've made lies our refuge and falsehood our shelter. When God says he'll beat them down because their refuge and their shelter will be washed away by his judgment of this other nation. As often as it passes through, verse 19, it will take you. For morning by morning it will pass through, by day and by night. In other words, it will not stop. And it will be a sheer terror to understand the message. A sheer 
terror to understand the message. God said, I will come against you in judgment because you are scoffers. You not only don't hear my word, but you scoff at it and set your own wisdom in place. And you think it will bring you security, but it's built on lies. It's a covenant with death. And right in the middle of that is the promise of the cornerstone. But God has a purpose in showing them. God wants them to know a few things. And look in verse 20. God says, I'm doing this so you will know your refuge and shelter will not protect you from judgment. That's the purpose of these metaphors. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself on. In other words, you want to go to sleep, but the bed's too short. So you're not going to get much sleep. You want to be warm, but your, your covering is just too small. Your blanket's too small. He's using these pictures to show the way, you have, the way that you have sought this security, it's not going to function. And I want you to know that. I want you to know that when I act against you, it's just like you put a blanket on that is too small to keep you warm. But he also says, I will act in the strange and alien way of using my power against you instead of on your behalf. Look at verse 21. Notice these are all connected. Verse 20, verse 21, both start with four. God is going to work in these ways for these reasons. Verse 21 says, For Yahweh will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon, he will be roused to do his deed. Strange is his deed. And to work his work. Alien is his work. So what is this telling us? This, this reference to Mount Perizim and the valley of Gibeon. Mount Perizim is one of the places that God came to deliver David and his armies from the Philistines. And we read about that where God has stepped in and it's been his strength. And so our mind is, in, in, is with David in that how God worked on behalf of his people when his people were obeying him and were obeying the covenant. The Valley of Gibeon, it could mean Judges chapter 10, where in the Valley of Gibeon, God comes on behalf of his people. Remember that, that, that wonderful story where the five Amorite kings and as God's people overtake them, the, the, um, the sun stands still and then he brings hailstones and he brings hailstones on the five Amorite kings, their enemies. It could refer to that. But if we look at this idea of Mount Perizim in 2 Chronicles 14, we see that Mount Perizim, the same way that God intervenes on David's behalf at Mount Perizim, he does also in the Valley of Gibeon in the next several verses. And so I think we're talking about all of what God did under David, David's um, army, and it was God's strength overcoming their enemies on their behalf for God's glory. And he said, that's the way I want to act. I act in this way. I act in this way for my people. And that's why I think back when he talks about the covenant of death and the agreement of Sheol, I'm wondering whether he's also talking about them sitting in Jerusalem, like in Ezekiel's time, when they talked about the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They thought they were safe because they were the representatives of Yahweh in his temple. Could these people have thought they were safe because they were in covenant with the holy God who's always acted for his people? And now he gets down and we're shown that he did act in those, in those ways, but they were obedient. Remember, we're in the midst of a covenant curse with a nation, Assyria, coming against the northern kingdom. We're in the midst of that, that covenant curse that he will bring a people from the north from far off and they will not understand them. And I think that all of that is under this. They are taking a false security in the covenant as if they had no obligation to obey God. And thought that he would keep them safe. And he says, I've acted that way in the past, but now what does he say? I'm going to rise up and do, he is going to rise up and do his deed, and it's strange, and to work his work, and it's alien. It's strange and alien because now he's coming against his people because they're sinful. They're scoffers with his word. But in verse 22, he reminds them again where we started. He wants them to know not to scoff at Yahweh's word of destruction. Now, therefore, Isaiah says, therefore, do not scoff. He started out by calling them scoffers, demonstrating how they scoffed at the word of God, showing where they should have been if they were rest resting in the word of God and not scoffing, and then showing what God will do because they have scoffed. And now he says, I'm telling you all that's going to happen, so do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. Remember the words for the northern kingdom in verse 13, that they may go, fall backward, be broken, ensnared, and taken. 
So their bonds of being in prison, of being um, sent into exile, are going to be made stronger if they continue to scoff at the word of God. Why, Isaiah says? The second half of verse 22, For I have heard a decree of destruction from Yahweh, from the Lord God of hosts, again, the whole land, against the whole land. So Isaiah said, I've heard this word. You must not scoff at it, because it will happen. And if you do scoff at it, that judgment will happen. So the southern kingdom is set up even in more judgment for than the northern kingdom, because they're not just ignoring the word, but they're scoffing at it and putting their own wisdom. In the northern kingdom, they have just ignored it, and that ignoring of the word has allowed them to live as they want. In the southern kingdom, it's allowed them to replace the wisdom of God with the wisdom of man. And God says, I will sweep over that like waters, uh, uh, raging waters. But then he returns in the last several verses with a parable of sowing and reaping to show Yahweh will administer the proper amount of judgment until he harvests his remnant. Now let's read this, and once we read it, it's very simple to understand. Verse 23, give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows, let's stop there. Give ear, hear my voice, give attention and hear my speech. Now, that's exactly what's not been happening, right? They've not been giving attention, and they've not been hearing. They have been acting just like God promised that they would act in Isaiah's call in chapter 6, when he calls Isaiah to preach, and then he says, go, he tells Isaiah to tell them, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Isaiah was told at the very beginning, he would be talking to an unrepentant people. And yet there's always the hope of the remnant. And here is the hope of the remnant. And those who have ears to hear, those who have circumcised hearts, they have eyes to see and ears to hear will understand. That's why Isaiah continues to tell them, give ear and hear my voice, give attention to my speech. Verse 24, does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat and rose and barley in its proper place and emer as, as the border? For he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. So the first image that's given to us is you don't just keep plowing. Your plowing has a purpose, and that is to plant. And you plant in certain ways. And God has spoken and taught. And this is what's passed down from generation to generation of how to do this. It's common sense. Verse 27. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cart wheeled rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does anyone crush grain for bread? Or better, this is probably better, grain is crushed for bread, but he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cart wheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from Yahweh of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. So just as you don't just keep plowing, your plowing has a purpose, and that is to plant. It, you also have a purpose of harvest. And when you harvest, you don't, you don't use tools that overpower the type of grain that you are trying to harvest. You use the proper tools, and you do it in the proper ways. You don't crush it where there's nothing left. And this is the way God acts in judgment. God acts in judgment. He does what needs to be done. He will do no more, and he will do no less. And if you were part of the remnant... God says through Isaiah, God will discipline you. He will discipline you as a nation, but he's not going to crush you to your destruction because there's a promise that he will bring back his remnant. So that's what's being brought in this parable, these parables that are bringing us to say, God is wise. He does what is right and righteous and just, and it is always perfect. It is not underdone and it is not overdone. And Isaiah is speaking to his people to heed this counsel so that they are not overrun like the northern kingdom. Well, how do God's people end up in that position of security? How do they end up in the position of security? Well, they end up in the position of security because they believe in the stone. They believe in the cornerstone. They, They believe that God has set a sure foundation. Two New Testament passages, and I want you to be thinking now towards the Lord's Supper. As we get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is for those who are believing, yes? 
It is for those who are trusting in the Lord. Those who are not trusting in their own wisdom. Do we sin? Yes. Do we repent? Yes. Does God continue to sanctify us? Yes. And all along we are living lives that need strengthening by the reminder that Christ has come, lived, and died on our behalf. And that all of his works have produced our salvation because he is the perfect one. And that when Christ came and we are in union with him, then all his blessings are ours. His resurrection makes our resurrection sure. But we need reminding of that, don't we? We, we are a people who can be belligerent. We, we are the people who can be the sheep. We are the people who can act like we're scoffing against God's word. Listen, this is, this is the way the world looks right now. The world is scoffing. The world has moved from just ignoring God's word and scoffing in silence to scoffing out loud. So, so now we've moved. We're, we're, not just, we're not just saying the right things out in public and behind the scenes working all the evil. Now we're working the evil out in public. And not only are we working the evil out in public, but we're making sure in our nation and in other nations that those who don't agree with us working out evil and don't approve that, they're part of the problem and they should be punished. This is scoffing at God's word in front of us every day. The people of God have a place in the midst of that scoffing because we are not the scoffers. We are the ones who believe in the cornerstone and we believe in the word of God. And the word of God says we are to go out in the midst of the scoffers and preach. This is an evangelistic text. It tells us that we're to be in the midst of the scoffers and we are not to um, miss out on the opportunities. Miss out like this. I was watching one of the football games yesterday, one of these national championship games, the first one. And in the, I think it was at halftime, a commercial locally broke in, as, you know, paid for time in this nationally televised game. And I'm sure just to air locally, but it was the pastor of a local church. And it was, the pastor came on, he introduced himself as the pastor of this church. So he set himself up now to be the pastor of a church, and he's about to tell us something. He didn't mention the Bible once. Didn't mention Jesus once. You know what he said? He quoted somebody, I think about it, Newt Rockney or some famous football coach, who had three different ways of, of leading his men through the difference between wanting to accomplish something and actually accomplishing it. And he gave that Newt Rockney's or whoever it was, whatever football coach, he gave that wisdom and he said, and the last step was to choose to be positive, to choose to have a positive attitude. And he said, so this is, if you want success today, take my advice, choose to be positive. On to the next commercial. No mention of the scripture, no mention of Jesus, no mention of sin. It was a self-help message by a pastor of a large church in the Little Rock area. And that's how that pastor decided he was going to address the whole listening audience of a nationally televised football game. That, my friends, is not only ignoring, but scoffing at the word of God. Because people can be on the road to hell and be convicted and judged on their sin and be positive every minute of every single day. He had an opportunity to tell them about Jesus, and he neglected to do that. He scoffed at the word of God. Let that not be us. And I'll tell you that. I'm not telling you the name of the church or the pastor. If you saw it, you know who I'm talking about, because my point is not to condemn them. My point is to warn us how easy it is to drift in to this idea that, that Scripture is not enough for us. That what God has revealed in himself is not enough for us. We begin by ignoring it like the northern kingdom. And it leads to bad living, bad wisdom, bad decision making. And then we begin to scoff at it. I know what the Bible says, but. I hear what you're saying, but. When people come and try to press into you about a certain viewpoint, you have a scripture and you don't have any intent of ever moving because you know the truth. And if you just have 30 seconds more with them, you'll convince them of your viewpoint as well. This is the way we are tempted to live. But the Bible, starting here and even Isaiah 28, Isaiah is saying, listen to and obey the word of God. Let it wash over your life. Let the preciousness of the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, let the preciousness of Jesus affect you. Let it, let it seep into everything that you do. Let it be that you are the one who reads the word and, and obeys it so that you make your discipline less Right? If we're believers, are going to be disciplined. We talked about that last week. In Hebrews, we learned that. That's a good thing. It's not a good thing we need discipline. It's a good thing God loves us enough to do it. But it also, hear me now, 
It also means that you will not be that person who sits in this room every single Sunday and listens to a sermon that preaches Christ and goes away scoffing at the word when you are actually headed to hell. You can sit right here and say all the right words on the outside, but be scoffing at the word of God on the inside. I don't want that to happen here. I I want this to be when we hear the word of God, our hearts are lit up and we are drawn to him. Paul says this in Romans, doesn't he? Paul says in Romans that he would give his life, his salvation for his country, his, his country, um, his countrymen. He said if he could, he would do that. They had all these blessings in the Old Testament, and they still have walked away from Jesus, the, the cornerstone. They've walked away from this one. They've stumbled over the cornerstone. And Paul uses both the Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28 and puts them together, and he says, that has God taken his affection away from all the Jews? And he says, no, of course not. Look at me. I'm a believer, and I'm a Jew, and I'm, I'm a believer now. So he's not taking his affection away from the Jew. What he's done is what he's always said he's going to do, and he is going to come against those people who stumble over the stumble stone. Those people who don't stumble because it's not a stumbling stone, it's a precious stone, a tried stone. Those are the people who are now in Christ because Christ is the cornerstone. I want you to turn to one passage in the New Testament. It's already been read today, but we need to remind ourselves. I want you to turn to 1 Peter. First Peter, we're going to be in the second chapter. And I want you to see, I told you we're leading into the Lord's Supper. I want you to see how the fact of believing in the cornerstone that we receive those blessings should affect us. And if it should affect us, we need to constantly remind ourselves of the truths of Christ, our cornerstone. And that's what we come to do in the Lord's Supper. We come to remind ourselves of the person and work of Christ, feed upon that work so that we go out and walk in the good works that have been prepared beforehand for us. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So this is a description of Jesus. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's our verse in Isaiah 28 brought to us by, by Peter in this chapter. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. You see the contrast. Those who believe in that cornerstone, they're the ones that have security, Old Testament language. Here, we're the ones that will not be put to shame. We will not, we will stand in the judgment, not fall, because Christ has already taken the penalty. He has already suffered the wrath and died on behalf of his people. So we are the ones who believe in him, this precious cornerstone, that's the blessing to us. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's where we start in our service today with our call to worship. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's our Isaiah 8 verse, where God himself, Yahweh himself was the stone. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, those who believe, You are a chosen race. All of this wonderful Old Testament language. Um, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is our job. It's a proclamation job, we who believe in the cornerstone. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Behold, or beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, Old Testament language, but talking about our life in this world heading to the next, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, the opposite of what the northern kingdom did, 
which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Our job as blood-bought believers in the cornerstone is to live a life that God uses to draw others to that same cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking friendship evangelism because we're to proclaim, right? We're to proclaim, but our lives back that up. So the resolution that the Israelites should have had, northern and southern kingdom, in Isaiah 28, the the resolution they should have had is resolved to listen to and obey the word of the Lord. And that's our resolution, isn't it? To hear, to listen to, and obey the word of the Lord. Because when we do that, we see his beauty. We see his richness. We fall more in love with him. We are sanctified. And God uses us in the law, in his work of advancing the kingdom. So we learn all that from Isaiah 28. And as we come to the table, we're feeding upon the truths that Christ has provided everything we need to live this life. We're feeding upon those truths. We're not merely just memorializing what has happened. We're remembering the work of Christ and feeding upon it so our souls are fed by the truth of the word and our actions are fortified by the word working itself out through the power of the spirit. Take a few moments and just prepare your hearts and minds to take the Lord's Supper. And if you're serving it today, please come forward.